0: It is another joyous opportunity, isn't it, that we have been given by the great God of heaven to assemble as we are this afternoon. To do so in the serenity and tranquility of this moment, doesn't it in fact rest in our hearts and minds just how privileged and how blessed we are to enjoy such a time as this one? I'm sure as we're each well aware, though, there is a congregation not very far away from us down toward Nashville that has suffered a tragedy today a tragedy that certainly is unspeakably horrible, a tragedy that has not only resulted in shaking up of of a community, a community involving a congregation, but certainly one that you and I would do well to keep in our prayers and our thoughts. Jesus prayed, didn't He, in John 17, that all those that believe on Him would be one, that they would appreciate the magnificence that He and the Father are one and that he also would wish us to be one as all of His followers. Tonight, as we get ready for this part of our lesson, let's have at least a brief word of prayer, if we might. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the goodness that Thou has bestowed upon us, thankful for the sending of Jesus, thankful, Father, for all the wonderful blessings that we enjoy through Him. We are aware that every spiritual blessing comes through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, And tonight, Father, we wish to pray for thy faithful congregations all over this world. Please be with them, and may they be strong and fortified in the truth. And we pray, Father, for the tragedy that has occurred today, that that would be with that circumstance, be with those who are involved in it. We pray that that would provide comfort, that that would provide a sense of consideration with respect to to those who are members thereof. We ask now, Father, that would continue to be with us here at the Pippin Congregation this evening. It's our earnest plea that our worship will glorify and please Thee. It is in the great name of Jesus, Thy Son and our Savior, we pray. Amen. Angels. You'll notice on that slide that we're going to continue a discussion that we began really last Sunday evening. On that occasion, we began a two-part series on the subject, the topic of angels. And as we did that, we discussed some questions that this opening slide basically rehearses or at least reviews. As you give thought to what those questions were, those issues involved in it, we noticed that the angels are real. In other words, the Bible makes reference to them and it's not merely figments of individuals' imagination. The Bible, both Old and New Testament, makes reference to them. Not only that, you'll note the following. We learned some basic information about them. As you think about some of that information, you'll recall that it was very specific in many ways. But the last part of that lesson had to do with the text of Hebrews 1.14. What do angels do? That text, as was just read a moment ago, Brother Dennis brought before us again that that rather famous passage, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to do service, if you please, unto those who shall be heirs of salvation? In other words, we can rest assured this much, angels in some way provide service to those who are the heirs of salvation. And as we close that lesson last time, we basically look forward, I guess, to thinking about some various ways in the Bible that we could see what those activities are. Tonight, we'll see if we can't look at a few passages that bring those thoughts before us. You'll notice as you begin this slide, it began with the following observation. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. Jeremiah 15, verse 16. The Word of God will be our guide. We're all aware that the television, for instance, Hollywood has released over the years many movies and television programs centered around angels. I think we mentioned a few of the names last Sunday evening. Those shows like Touched by an Angel, Highway to Heaven, and others. As you think about them, they have portrayed angels in a specific way. Are those biblically accurate? Well, tonight, let's see what angels do as it's related in the Bible. And why don't we begin in the following way. At the top of this slide, you'll notice again that general description. Inasmuch as these angels are said, all of them, to serve as ministering spirits to those who will be heirs of salvation. But almost immediately, there are a number of questions that arise. So what really do they do? Point number one. On a number of occasions in the Word of God, we found that angels were critically involved in the delivering of messages. Look at some of these verses with me. In Matthew chapter 1 verse number 20, there was a man named Joseph, and at that time he was already espoused to a young woman named Mary, but it was discovered that she was with child. Who was it that came and brought the message to Joseph, don't you be afraid to take Mary as your wife? It was an angel. On that occasion, there was an angel who brought that powerful message to Joseph. But not only he, in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and following, another angel appeared to Mary. This time, it was a little bit previous in terms of the chronology, it was told to Mary, The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and you will be found with child, and the one that you'll bring forth, call his name Jesus. For not only that... He will reign on the throne of David, his father, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Might you and I keep in mind, it was an angel that brought that message to Mary. To those, might we add this. In Matthew 2, verse number 13, on yet a different occasion sometime later in the life of that little baby boy named Jesus, you might recall that Herod was a rather mean monarch and It was his desire really to bring about the death of all the baby boys and information was brought to Joseph. You take Mary and the baby and you flee to Egypt. Who brought the message? It was an angel. The text informs us on that occasion, again, the angel brought that very important message so that the life not only of Joseph and Mary but of the baby could be spared. To that, In Matthew 28, verse number 5, after our Savior was crucified and even after He was resurrected, you might recall that an angel appeared and rolled the stone away. And not only that, when the women arrived, it was that angel who shared with them, you seek Jesus, but He's not here. He's risen. One more time, those angels brought a message, delivered a message on that occasion. Perhaps just a few more. So far, all of those have been taken from the gospel accounts. But as we come to the next one, the book of Acts, in Acts 27, verses 23 and following, on that occasion, Paul, of course, was making his way to Rome because he had appealed to Caesar. But on that voyage to Rome, there was a great treacherous character to it, and ultimately, it was an angel who appeared to Paul at night and said, "'Not a single life will be lost.'" In other words, those mariners who had already struggled so mightily because a shipwreck was about to occur, and for days they had not seen the sun due to the cloud cover. But it was an angel who assured Paul, both you and they will be safe. What about this one in Daniel 8, verses 16 and following? This one taken from the Old Testament. Daniel, of course, was blessed to be the recipient of a number of amazing visions. Often that detail the character through hundreds of years of what the kingdoms on this earth were going to look like. But ultimately, of course, the great kingdom of God was going to be established. But might we remember in Daniel 8 who delivered the interpretation of those things to Daniel? The text says it was an angel. One more time, it was a message that this angel's work at that moment was to do, delivering information to this servant of God named Daniel. Perhaps one final one, in Zechariah chapter 1, also taken from the Old Testament, here that great prophet Zechariah, one more time, he was blessed in the position of his life to be the recipient of this message from an angel. All of that reminds us that on these occasions... God commissioned angels. He utilized angels in His work of delivering messages to individuals at specific moments in time. This would be a perfect occasion, though, for us to remember that God doesn't communicate today except through His Son. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-3, through 3, it reads, "...God, who at sundry times and in divers' manner spake in time past unto the fathers of the prophets," hath in these last days spoken to us by His Son. The God of heaven then shares with you and me the important messages of faith and verity and truth, and He does so through the inspired word from the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, you and I ought not expect to receive a message from an angel like what has been detailed in these circumstances. But isn't it true that it does make us wonder what else have angels done? What else has been some of the works in which they have been involved? The next slide will ask us to contemplate this one. It's also true that in detailed character, angels had a rather remarkable benefit to those that were the redeemed. I suppose we aren't too shocked by that in light of the Hebrews 1 verse 14 passage. But let's look at just these few examples. Elijah lived in a very challenging time. You may remember the man's name who was king at the time was Ahab. His wife was Jezebel. And they had specifically taken to their liberty of bringing about and establishing the worship of Baal amongst Israel. Jezebel, in fact, killed as many of the prophets of God as she could. She wanted to establish, in fact, make it the national religion to worship Baal. And yet there stood this noble man named Elijah, who stood for God, who opposed the error of all of that idolatry. You may remember, though, that as those various prophets were put to death, Jezebel had it in for Elijah. In 1 Kings 19 verse 2, in fact, she to him said, By this time tomorrow, I'm going to have your life too. Two verses later, Elijah flees for his own safety. And God directed him to make his way to where he in fact would be safely kept for a while beside a brook and birds in fact provided him with food. But may I ask that during the course of that movement to that place, who was it that came to Elijah, strengthening him and giving him message? It was an angel. You may recall Elijah had fallen asleep beneath a juniper tree and the angel woke him up and fixed him something to eat. And not only that, he needed that for encouragement and for strength and sustenance because Elijah was having a difficult time in the journey. You noticed with me here an angel had a powerful role in providing a benefit to a, to a man that was redeemed. Why don't we add another one to that list? In Daniel 6 verse number 22, a particular edict, of course, had been asserted in which no one could worship any being except the king. Daniel, of course, was faithful to pray three times every day, and even those who were his enemies, and they, in fact, sneaked the king into signing that edict. Wasn't it true that in the aftermath of it, the king had to be true to his edict, and so Daniel was thrown into a den of lions? Daniel in the lion's den, a record you and I know so very well, but may I ask in verse 22, who was it? that offered encouragement and helpfulness to Daniel. The text says it was an angel. Here was a servant of God cast into a den of lions, and yet God didn't forsake him. It was an angel who provided a means of helpfulness. The third list, the third example on that one, takes us to Isaiah 37 verse 36. Here again, the scene was a very challenging one. The people of God were such that an enemy nation was standing literally on their doorstep. The Assyrian army was mighty, it was powerful. And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, was such that he was a bit fearful as to what was going to happen. But yet, he was admonished to be true and faithful to God. And God sent His angel and destroyed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. An angel did that. 185,000 of the enemy preserving Hezekiah, preserving Israel, preserving his people. The Assyrians, of course, were not able to complete that battle, but they retreated as you would well expect. The last one on that example, in Acts chapter 12, we now come to the New Testament. A great servant of God named Peter He, of course, was such that Herod had taken a great liking to putting Peter to death because he had already put James to death, and he saw how the Jews loved this. And so he imprisoned Peter with the intent to do the same. And yet, Peter was released from prison by an angel. An angel did this. In fact, that was the very occasion when Peter showed up, you may remember, at the, at, at the house, and Rhoda initially wouldn't let him in, but she went and, and told that, I've seen Peter's spirit. But notice with me what an angel accomplished on that occasion. As you and I close that second point, isn't it remarkable to think of the ways in which God, at least on those instances, has used angels to provide benefit to those that were His faithful servants? Why don't we come to number three? the execution of God's judgment. Isn't it also true that at least on several instances, angels have had a part to play in the execution of the great judgment of God? I selected a few of these. Why don't we start with the 1 Chronicles 21 passage. In 1 Chronicles 21, David had made an error. It was such that he, in fact, had numbered Israel when that was not the thing to have been done. He placed his confidence and he placed his trust in troops rather than in God. Even his commander, Joab, said, Don't do this, David. But David did it anyway. And in the aftermath of that, David said, I have sinned greatly. But God appeared to him and said, David, you're going to have to be punished for this. And that punishment is going to involve something, and you get to pick what it's going to be. And so God gave him a choice. And David selected three days of pestilence. And an angel was sent by God and this angel began to kill and to slaughter. But it was an angel that was doing it. Did you notice with me here, God's judgment on that occasion, at that time, was meted out by the agency of an angel. How about another one? In 2 Chronicles 32, 21. Here again, Assyria is under description. And one more time, we find that God, in that same circumstance we noted earlier, it was an angel that was utilized by the Heavenly Father in the destroying of those hundreds of thousands of Assyrians. Protecting His people, preserving them through so that the bloodline could be maintained. I suppose the last one takes us to Matthew 13 in the heart of the New Testament. That parable chapter wherein we find Jesus giving us a beautiful description, rather challenging admittedly, but a beautiful description. You and I often call it that parable of the tares of the field. You remember with me how it went. An enemy went out and sowed tares amongst the wheat. And when it was discovered, the question was raised, do we go out and root up the tares? And the owner said, no, let them remain And then when we gather them all, we'll separate the tares in one group and burn it, and we'll let the wheat be gathered into the barn. As Jesus gave the interpretation of that parable, He left us not to doubt. He said, the reapers are the angels. The reapers are the angels. In other words, those at the end of time who will have at least a part to play in the ending of all things. The angels are going to be assistants, if you please. Directing some, I suppose, toward the barn. Directing others, I suppose, toward that eternal and ruinous abode. Isn't it fascinating to think about the angels having a part to play in that? You'll notice as you close that particular discussion with me, so far we've learned tonight three things the angels have done, at least in Bible times. Let's continue that discussion as we look at number four. I've entitled this one, Ordination. I think as you look at some of these examples with me, it'll not be terribly surprising. We'll easily understand the thrust of this language. Let's start in Galatians 3.19. The law of Moses. You and I remember how marvelously that law was given at Mount Sinai when Moses had climbed that mount And he was privileged by God to receive that magnificent law. But yet, may I suggest, Galatians 3.19 by inspiration says, that law was ordained and being given to Moses through angels. The angels had a part to play in the ordination of that Old Testament law of Moses, in the bequeathing of it, the giving of it, if you will, to Moses. That's a fascinating thought. To imagine that by some means the angels had a part to play in the ordaining, if you will, of that law. Now that's not to say they superseded God's directive. It's just that He utilized them in some way to bring forth that law. Why don't we add this one to that? As you and I come to the last book in all of the volume of God, the book of Revelation... In the opening stanza of that book, Revelation 1 verse 1, we have here God the Father revealing to the Christ who gave the message to His angel who directed it to John. But did you notice? An angel was included in the thoroughfare whereby that book of Revelation was given. That again is amazing, isn't it? When you and I read the Revelation, an angel had a hand in sending forth that message so that John could write it down. And aren't you and I blessed to have it? That isn't the only time that basic idea is put before us. In Revelation 22:16, 16, the last chapter in that same book. There, one more time, an angel is particularly described as revealing the message to John. And John was so overwhelmed that he fell, prepared to worship that angel. But the angel quickly corrected him, "'See thou do it not.'" worship God as great as these angels have been as critical as some of their work has been they are not divine nor were they ever they are not to be worshiped let's add another to that list in Revelation 5 verse number 2 there is the overwhelming description of a seven sealed book in the right hand of the father the one who is sitting upon that great throne in heaven And you and I remember that it seems as if almost the record was going to stop before it started because nobody in earth or heaven was worthy to take the book and loose the seals and reveal what was in it. But suddenly, those four living creatures told John, Don't cry. The Lamb is worthy. And as a part of that, angels are also listed. The angels were described as being a part of that marvelous an incredible number who were witnessing those events. So whether it be the law of Moses or whether it be the book of Revelation, angels had a part to play in the making it available to you and me. Let's add another thing, number five. We realize the law of Moses, of course, has long since been nailed to the cross and we don't serve beneath that as the law today. Today. We serve beneath the gospel, the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, I wonder if angels have had any role to play in any way related to it. And the answer, as I think we're about to see, appears to be yes. Let's start like this. As you consider with me the spreading of the gospel, what is it we learn in Acts chapter 8? Here, a eunuch, one who had traveled roughly a thousand miles one way to worship. And yet, as he was returning homeward, he was reading in what you and I would call Isaiah 53. And it was on that occasion that someone gave this message to Philip, join yourself to the chariot. And of course, we all know who it was. It was an angel that gave Philip that message. On that occasion, the God of heaven utilized an angel to direct a preacher to a listener who would be a ready listener. Somebody who would be willing to accept and hear openly the truth of what was presented. Two chapters later, in Acts chapter 10, you notice there the record of Cornelius is presented to you and me. A record whereby here again was an earnest and pious and honest man And he had that vision. And remember, an angel said, You send a Joppa for one named Simon Peter. One more time, an angel was utilized by God in that book of Acts to help bring a preacher to a ready listener. Let's look at another one. In Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, as we noted earlier, the greatness of these angels, it would be well to at least interject the following. The gospel of Jesus Christ is such that even an angel cannot change it. Though we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. And so although it's true that the angels are greater than you and I, they still have no authority to change the gospel. It has been etched, if you please, in the halls of heaven, and angels are privileged in the sense that they're able to serve in relation to it, but they are not privileged to change it, to alter it, to modify it, to add anything to it or delete anything from it. Doesn't that remind you and me about the grandeur of this gospel? It shall stand unchanged until, yea, when you and I on the day of judgment will see it opened one more time. Because isn't it true in Revelation 20 verses 11 and 12, the books are going to be opened, And one of those books will be the very one Jesus said would be in John 12, 48. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. As you think about that attribute of angels, I freely confess that this next one is astounding, at least to me. Would you consider 1 Peter 1, verse 12 with me? As Peter delivers these opening sentiments in that book of 1 Peter, he highlights that those to whom he was writing were undergoing a difficulty and affliction and they were going to suffer a fiery trial of persecution. But as he prescribed that, beginning in verses verses 7 and following, he said, "...receiving the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul." Even though you're persecuted and tried, you must be faithful, He told them. And then to amplify that over the three verses that follow, He describes, don't you realize that even the prophets of the Old Testament era, as blessed as they were, they often spoke about things, but they didn't fully understand it. We're the ones that are the beneficiaries of it. They only saw it in the distant future. They never lived to see Jesus They never lived to see the church. Those men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, as great as they were, they died long before the church was ever established. Peter's point was, not only the prophets, but the angels. Although they are in essence circling the throne of heaven, they desire to look into what you've got. Can you just imagine the angels attempting to peek out of heaven and appreciate the blessings you and I have? That's what Peter describes. They desire to look into what you and I have. You're more blessed than an angel if you're a faithful Christian. You're more blessed than even an angel if you're a faithful Christian. May we never underestimate... What a great privilege it is to be a member of the body of Christ. With that one, let's look at the last one. On that slide in Luke 15, verse number 10. You recall with me there, Jesus made this amazing description wherein, in that chapter, there was a lost coin. There was also given a lost sheep and, of course, also a lost boy. But in light of the first two, Jesus made an interesting statement. He said, there is more joy in heaven with the angels over one sinner that repents than over ninety and nine that need no repentance. The angels rejoice when a child of God who is lost comes home. The angels in heaven celebrate and they rejoice when someone walks down this aisle who needs to and becomes right with God. The angels celebrate when that happens. Don't you and I get the impression that these angels, they are so much pulling for you and me. They desire to look into what we enjoy. They thrill at the thought of what is involved in the blood of Christ. They get excited when someone is right with God. All of that, I suppose, prepares us for a few final remarks. Some additional thoughts about angels. You'll notice on this slide with me. I thought this would be a good time to at least interject the following comment. Maybe you've wondered about it. Does the Bible teach that there are guardian angels? That each and every one of us, and especially children, have a guardian angel. The one and only place wherein a a description even resembling that is found is Matthew chapter 18, verse number 10. And it was on that occasion when Jesus pronounced a rather strong statement to anybody who would cause one of these to stumble and to offend. And as He referred to those children, as a part of that He said, for their angels do always behold the face of their Father, which is in heaven. Now you may notice the grammar does not guarantee that there are things like guardian angels the grammar doesn't in any wise mandate that in fact it would seem based on even experience that you and I have 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 often observed that there are no guardian angels Isn't it true that you and I have known many a young person who tragically died This young boy or girl who we know was innocent because they hadn't reached the age of knowing wrong from right, and yet they were afflicted with some terrible malady like cancer or perhaps they died tragically in a car wreck. Well, where was the guardian angel when that happened, if there is such a thing? Again, Jesus didn't say, that each one of these youths has a guardian angel. What he taught is that in heaven there are angels, and you and I have known that already. And these angels labor on behalf of the faithful. They are commissioned by God to carry out His works, whatever form and structure those may take. But the text doesn't say that each and every person has his or her own guardian angel. But in addition to that, note this. One of the clear attributes we find in both the Old and New Testament is this. Angels are incredibly serious about properly directed worship to God. They are serious about this. We noted it earlier, but isn't it true that there in Revelation 22, as well as even earlier in that book, there was an angel and John was so overwhelmed, so fascinated by what he had just seen, and you can imagine as the panorama of Revelation was before his eyes, seeing plagues, seeing beasts, seeing dragon, And that's just a sampling, a small sampling of what's in the book. John was overwhelmed and he fell fa- before that angel, prepared to worship. And the angel, it seems, incredibly quickly said, Don't do that. Worship God. That angel knew very well. That angel was certainly aware of the greatness of God. He was aware of the true almighty character, the awesomeness of God. And so the angel was serious about making sure that worship was as it ought to be. May I suggest we ought to, of course, consider the seriousness of worship as well. Let's add another one to that list. Another one that is fascinating is Revelation 8. In verses 4 and 5 of that chapter, an angel again is under description and the scene is a very telling one. John, what you see right in the book, I see as sweet-smelling incense, the prayers of the saints come up before God. But they're coming out of someone's hand. Whose hand is it? John said it's an angel's. Does that teach, then, that angels have a part to play in the conveying of your prayers and mine to God? Now, we know that Jesus is the only mediator, but could it be that the angels assist in carrying our prayers through Christ to God? It would seem to me that verse says the answer is yes. And again, John sees that twice in the book of Revelation. Isn't it beautiful to imagine as you and I pray our heartfelt petitions and prayers asked in accordance to the will of God, and it's an angel that assists in the conveying of those prayers unto God. As you contemplate those truths about angels, some of the things we certainly have seen in the book of Acts, as well as some of the later occurrences in the New Testament, angels had this interesting role of assisting contact between a preacher one proclaiming the truth, and an honest seeker of truth. Do angels still in some way assist in that work today? The later New Testament doesn't seem to say any more about that. Certainly it would be wise to conclude that those things that angels have been given us in description lead us to note this. Nowhere does the Bible say that human beings are angels. In fact, we are distinguished from them rather carefully in Hebrews chapter 2. Remember, we are made a little lower than the angels, Hebrews 2 verse 9 tells us. And so, those television shows that show basically human beings that portray and behave as angels, or shall we say angels operating through the nature of a human being's physical body, the Bible doesn't teach anything like that. Perhaps it's fair to say as we close that slide. One last thought that rather overwhelmed me at least was as I came to the last book in the Bible, how often angels were mentioned in the book of Revelation. And you can see the number. 76 times in the 22 chapters of Revelation. Angels, in one way or another, are referenced either as a part of carrying out work in heaven or as a part of having a role to play in the carrying out of work on earth. But either way, doesn't it impress us that among the heavenly host is a great, great company of angels and they do the bidding of their Father, they do the bidding of of God the Father and they in some way minister for those who are the faithful, the heirs of salvation." Our study tonight has brought us to consider angels and the a few of the activities that the Bible has described. Let me conclude the lesson by rehearsing in a brief way some of what we've seen the last couple of days, both last Sunday and tonight. Not only did we learn about the basic nature of angels, but we highlighted rather critically their origin as well as the features of their thrust in Hebrews 1.14. And then tonight we've added an extensive list of occurrences from the Word of God wherein it was said that an angel carried out some work. As you can see, everything from those occasions of delivering messages, those occurrences of ordination, those matters about the judgment of God even, all the way to our most recent one wherein we noticed what they did in light of some of the initial work of the gospel. I hope that in some ways this has been a faith-building study for each of us to understand just how great it is, again, to think that an angel looks into what you and I already enjoy if we're a faithful Christian. As we close this lesson tonight, it might be that there's someone in this audience who maybe had failed to understand what all heaven is doing in an ongoing way to assist in making salvation a reality. Jesus died on the cross. And as the angels looked on to that event, looked into that event, remember, angels haven't been given by God the opportunity to be a member of the church like you and I have. Angels aren't baptized like you and I can be. Angels, in fact, cannot be covered in the blood of Christ. Hebrews 2, verses 16 to 18 tells us. But you and I can. So much so that you and I know when those angels who chose to sin, there was no plan of salvation extended to them. They're lost. But yet, when you and I sin, God has extended a plan of salvation to us. It, of course, involved His Son. And tonight, if we could be of assistance to anybody perhaps one here or more who has never become a Christian, why not let tonight be the night? If you've reached the age of knowing right from wrong, and you have so far walked in the pathway of evil and iniquity, you've never come to Christ, why not make that decision tonight? It would be a joyous night. As we learned earlier, angels would be excited to celebrate. If we could help you in that way, it requires that you believe in Jesus with all of your heart.